Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. There are some fascinating women characters in the Torah. You are perhaps uh, familiar with the matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel, each of whom was married to an individual identified by Jewish tradition as a patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and whose children eventually uh, emerged to form uh, B'nai Yisrael, the tribe of Israel. And many of you are, of course, familiar with the stories of Miriam, Moses' sister, who saves him from um, certain death by placing him in the basket in the bulrushes, and then um, intuitively understands that if she can get him to the house of Pharaoh, that he will grow um, and survive. And of course, it's uh, Miriam who suggests that uh, Moses' mother, Yocheved, can become his wet nurse. And it's Miriam who sings the wonderful Shiratayam, Song of the Sea, at the crossing of the Red Sea. And it's Miriam who is identified there in Exodus 15 as a prophetess. And it is Miriam who um, occasionally is identified in the book of Exodus and beyond as uh, providing wells of water that will um, hydrate the Israelites during their desert journey. Of course, these well-known female heroes are supplemented by just a few others, such as Deborah. When Israel was in the middle of crisis, Deborah stepped in to play a pivotal role She served as a judge for the people and provided crucial guidance to another leader from Israel, Barak, to go into battle that would free Israel from its oppressors. For those of you who aren't familiar with the story of Deborah, we find it in the book of Judges, chapters 4 and 5. And of course, there's Ruth. Even though Ruth wasn't an Israelite, Her story is told um, each and every year in Migilat Ruth, the story of Ruth. Ruth remained loyal to her Israelite mother-in-law, Naomi. She followed Naomi back to her homeland with the famous words, Whither you go, I will go, and whither your God, my God. And there she married Boaz, the next of kin, to continue the family line, and provided for Naomi. Um, grandchildren, and ultimately her children became the um, precursors in the line of David, which, as uh, many of you know, is often used um, as a um, lineage for the story of Jesus. And you, of course, can read Ruth's story in the book of Ruth, chapters 1 through 4. And you might know about Hannah, from First Samuel chapter 1. Hannah went years without bearing a child, and she continued to pray in faith for God to provide her for a child. Eventually, she did give birth to a child, Samuel. 
And Samuel dedicated his life to God and grew up to be a wise and respected judge for the nation of Israel and anoints the first kings of Israel, Saul and David. And perhaps one of the least known heroines of um, the Hebrew Bible is Abigail. Found in uh, her story is found in First Samuel chapter twenty-five when Abigail's husband refused to treat David and his men with hospitality. He put the lives of his whole household at risk. That's when Abigail took charge, sending offerings of food and messages of peace. Ultimately, the story informs us that Abigail's wisdom brought peace and saved the lives of those around her. And I'm sure that perhaps there are other women whose stories are noted in the books of the Hebrew Bible. But there is an episode in the book of Numbers which introduces us to five additional heroines that are rarely acknowledged. In the story found in Numbers 25, and I will remind you of the context, um, Numbers 25 uh, begins by telling us that Aaron's grandson, Pinchas, is rewarded for an act of zealotry um, in killing the Simeonite priest Zimri and the Midianite princess who was his paramour. God grants to Pinchas a covenant of peace, Brit Shalom, and also grants him the priesthood. And it is from his line that will emerge the priesthood. Immediately after reminding us of the zealotry in the name of God, performed by Pinchas, a census is taken of all those over the age of 20. And we're told that there are 600,000 men of the children of Israel between the ages of 20 and 60. Moses is instructed by God on how the land of Israel is to be divided by lottery among the tribes and the families of Israel. And here we find the entrance of our heroines. The five daughters of Tzlifchad, Tzlifchad, petitioned Moses that they be granted the portion of the land belonging to their father, who died but had no sons. God accepts their claim and incorporates it into the Torah's laws of inheritance. That's the short, pithy overview. But let me tell you the rest of the story, which allows us to understand a bit more about why the five sisters, the daughters of Tzalachfad, serve as the first women in Judaism to ask questions about their own rights. This group of five sisters boldly approached Moses before the entire Jewish nation. And they have names. Machla, Noah, 
spelt without an H in English, Hoglach, Milkach, and Tzircha. It was the 40th year since the exodus from Egypt, according to the Torah. Shortly before the Jewish people were to enter the promised land, God informed Moses that each tribe's territory would be determined, among other things, by lottery. And you know that, of course, some of the determination of the land is determined by their responsibility to the tabernacle. Each man in the tribe would receive a parcel of land in his tribe's territory. Upon the man's death, his sons would inherit the property, thus guaranteeing that each plot would remain in the family to which it was originally assigned. One man, Tzilachad, of the tribe of Manasseh, had only daughters. He himself had died in the desert, and his daughters were worried that they would not receive a share in the land of Israel. They therefore turned to Moses and crested that they be granted the land that would have gone to their father. The Torah in Numbers 27 describes the scene eloquently. The daughters stood before Moses, Eleazar the high priest, the leaders and the entire congregation at the entrance to the tent of meeting and said, Our father died in the desert. He was not among those who banded against God among Korach's group. Rather, he died to his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should our father's name be eliminated from his family because he had no sons, they said. Give us, his five daughters, a land holding among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before God. God spoke to Moses as follows. The daughters of Tzilachfad have spoken correctly. You shall certainly give them a land holding among their father's brothers and transfer their father's inheritance to them. In fact, according to Jewish tradition, in their merit, the laws of inheritance follow this precedent. From then on, one who died without sons would have his daughters inherit his estate. You know, the text has a very interesting line in it. He died due to his own sins. What do you think that means? The Talmud offers two opinions as to what that sin might be. Though both agree it was done with good intentions. One view is that the daughter's father was among the Ma'apilim, the Jews who attempted to storm the land of Israel. After the sin of the spies, you will remember that, God decreed that the Jews would wander in the desert for 40 years until that last generation that had come out of Egypt had perished. Seeing the grievous consequences of their mistake, a group of Jews sought to rectify it. Disregarding Moses' warning that they would not succeed without God's blessing, they tried to invade Israel via the mountains. They were driven back and slaughtered by the Amalekites and Canaanites, but according to the Talmud, 
their intention was good. The second opinion is that Salah Ched was the unnamed man executed for violating Shabbat by gathering wood. Here, too, the Midrash attributes a positive intention to that action. The story of the man who collects wood on Shabbat is found in Numbers 15. Um, according to the Midrash, Salachfed overheard some Israelites saying that their sentence to wander in the wilderness meant that they were no longer required to observe the commandments. To prove them wrong, he deliberately violated Shabbat, providing an object lesson with his own life. And that Midrash is quoted in the rabbinic material. On a more literal level of interpretation, Rashi, the medieval commentator from France, notes that by pointing out that he was not part of Korach's revolt, his daughters wished to stress that their father had sinned alone and not led others astray. Ramban Nachmanides, also a medieval commentator, reads their words, the daughter's words, with a little more diff- differently. They believe that Moses detested Korach's sin above all others and so sought to assure him that their father had not participated. A variant on the first theme. Whatever the dad's sin, it was not severe enough to require that his name be erased from the pages of Jewish history. On the contrary, Thanks to his daughters, the name has positive connotations. Although few details are given about the sisters themselves, a careful reading of Jewish sources provides a portrait of intelligent and pious women. How do we know this? Well, the sisters' intelligence is evident from their clear presentation of their case. Indeed, God himself endorsed their argument, saying, The daughters of Selichfad have spoken correctly. In various places where the sisters' names are listed, they appear in different orders. Rashi tells us that this is to demonstrate that all five were equal in wisdom and righteousness. We're also told by the Talmud that although they married late in life, past childbearing ages, the sisters were blessed with large families. And most of all, of course, the daughters represent the Jewish women's love for the land of Israel. Our sages note that the contrast between the men who were afraid to enter the land and cried out, let us point a leader and return to Egypt, referring to the story of the spies in Numbers 19, the women were eager to possess the land and even demanded a share in it. The names of the two sisters, Noah and Tzir, Tirza have become popular Israeli names today for young women. 
Sometime after the events described above, Tzalafched's relatives approached Moses with another concern. Should these women marry into another tribe, their land holdings would end up being transferred into possession of the sons who would belong to that tribe and would be lost to the tribe of Manasseh. Moses relayed God's response. Indeed, Tzalafched's daughters should marry only within their own tribe. For the next 14 years, according to Jewish tradition, any woman who inherited her father's property could marry only someone from the same tribe. And after the land was conquered and divided, however, this law ceased to operate. From then on, an heiress could wed any man she pleased. So that is both the bare bones and a little midrashic rabbinic commentary. And let's go a little bit further in understanding what these daughters of Tzilofchad mean. You know, some commentators think that this story has all the earmarks of a Jane Austen novel. The disenfranchisement and injustices borne by women surrounding the question of inheritance rights. The formal but respectful articulation of the grievances of those women. The dramatic and triumphant vindication of their plight and plea. Though Jane Austen might have taken 500 pages to describe this, the story of the daughters of Slavchad only takes 11 verses in the Torah. You've already heard that the story starts out revolving around the issue of land allotments and anticipation of the Israelites settling the land of Canaan. Ownership of land was an essential component of the society of ancient Israel. This was a people that wandered, a migrant nation, a community of slaves, The idea of owning property, of having something permanent that would endure into the future and could be handed down from generation to generation was of central value. But up until this point in numbers, the value only applied to men. And the sense we should add at this moment of Judaism of passing on from generation to generation has continued, though land itself is no longer a component of that Jewish value the way it had been in the Torah. What replaced it was the words from Deuteronomy 6, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind. Adonai et, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind, and you shall teach them diligently to your children these words which I place within your heart and within your mind. And so passing from generation to generation has been morphed not so much with regard to ownership of land, but ownership of the tradition and making sure that it follows the biblical tradition of being um, a parent's responsibility to ensure that a child feels the power of the Jewish God and the Jewish tradition. You know, this continues 
Um, Salafchad, as you already heard, dies. He has no he has the daughters. And the Torah articulates it God's words most powerfully. The expression of affirmation, the Hebrew word Cain, which is in today's vernacular a simple and unequivocal yes, is the first word of this Hebrew verse. It is followed by their identities and concludes with the words dovrot, speak, literally. Yes, the daughters of Salafchad speak. Concise and poetic, it is stated without ambiguity, and it comes from the ultimate authority in the Torah. You know, we can have little doubt to the importance of this tale. It was in Torah terms, a game-changer. All bite a few verses in length 11. The story of Salafchad's daughters commands the attention of students of Torah for generations. Particularly in the modern era, these women are a source of strength and inspiration to all those who espouse a liberal and progressive interpretation of the role of women in Judaism. To be sure, and let me be clear, while this story is hardly a reversal of the male-dominated emphasis of biblical Judaism, this story is nevertheless a dramatic affirmation of the voice of the women in Torah. Unlike previous challenges to Moses, especially in the book of Numbers, the daughters of Salafchad are not descendants, dissentants, or rebels. They, are, they merely seek a redress of legitimate grievances. It is little wonder that some think that this story serves as the origin of role models for the modern Jewish woman. Even more so, for those who seek a textual basis to substantiate Judea, the view of Judaism as an organic tradition, the story of Salafchad's daughters represents the religion of Moses as a work in progress. Their case is one that God, at least within the narrative of the Torah, had not considered. Because of their situation and subsequent plea, the daughters of Salafchad affect a reform, an adaptation of Jewish traditional law as dictated by shifting reality, realities. More than simply seeking clarification, they bring a change, a fairly significant issue in a law-based tradition. There is, however, another aspect of this story that must not be looked, overlooked. Indeed, while it is the Peshat, the simple or basic plot line, it is true that the narrative's most salient element is that these women are acting first and foremost as daughters, that their central concern is not for themselves but for their father's legacy. 
They say in Numbers 27, 4, let us not let not our father's name be lost to his clan just because he had no son. Give us a holding among our father's kinsmen. So while some would read the text as a clarion call for social change, the daughters themselves are not asking for social change, even though they ask for possession of their father's portion of allotted land. They do so only on the grounds that their father's name not be lost. It is in their sense of familial responsibility that the daughters of Salafchad are at their most noble. This is no small matter. The sense of responsibilities to one's ancestor is of paramount value within Jewish tradition, more than simply remembering our forebears. The whole notion of tradition is that it is Mesorah, something that is passed on, something that is handed down. Implied in this Hebrew word Mesorah is that the source of tradition is as important as the recipient. Indeed, it is more important because it is that which has preceded us, that which we are endeavoring to preserve, even something as seemingly innocuous as a father's name. If the worst punishment is to blot out a name, as Jews are commanded to do regarding Amalek in Deuteronomy 25, then conversely, the most important act we do in honor of our ancestors is the preservation of their name. Earlier in that same chapter of Deuteronomy, we are commanded to do as much within the con- con- convention of Leverite marriage, a somewhat obscure law recording, uh, requiring the oldest brother or nearest male relative to marry his childless sister-in-law the widow of a deceased brother, so that the latter's name not be erased, according to Deuteronomy, because to forget a name would be to render that soul as if it had never been. And Jews, of course, today, um, in the Ashkenazic tradition, um, often name their children after a deceased relative. This begins way back here in Numbers 27, let our father's name not be lost. The daughters of Salafchet understood this. They are moved by it. They are willing to go to the top and they succeed in not merely keeping their family's inheritance, but also even more important in preserving their father's name. To wit, we rarely do we refer to them by their individual names. Rather, throughout the generations, they are known simply as Banot Salafachad, the daughters of Salafachad. And in doing so, we bring them to the place where their memories become a blessing. It's very funny. In Jewish tradition from this uh, pretty obscure story that seems to be about inheritance rights. The value of Mesorah, of tradition, the the value of Kavod Avaim, honoring our ancestors, Zechut Avot, the righteousness of our ancestors, all emerges 
in one short 11-verse story to tell us that how we preserve our tradition through the next generation is an essential part of our survival. This is Rabbi Stephen Garten for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you for listening, and have a good day.